Scriptural Sexual Ethics Introductory Comments. I'm not throwing stones. I have loads of my own sin. Whether it's adultery, fornication, or homosexuality, I am not here to condemn. As far as I can tell, philosophically, it appears there's only one way to have an unforgivable sin. And that is we refuse to acknowledge that we sin. We are all in need of mercy, and to rationalize sin is to deny our need for mercy. Andrew came to tell Simon Peter about Jesus, and he didn't say, if you don't believe me, you're going to hell. But he said in John chapter 1, verse 41, come and see the Messiah. Come and see. So this is not a hammer, and all I ask you to do is come and see what the scriptural truths have to offer for overcoming lust and sexual frustrations before and in marriage. And if you're like most, you're longing for solutions. I think I have them. And I offer them freely to you without condemnation. Sex is often the most consuming aspect for young men. And it was and is for me. And it's often the most emotionally painful aspect for young women. Marriage in itself does not provide a legitimate sexual outlet for disordered sexual desire. Getting married does not cure sexual disorder. Only redemption can. If anyone enters into marriage with deep-seated sexual disorders, he condemns his partner to a terribly unpleasant life of sexual objectification. The scriptural teaching does not correspond with prudishness. The scriptures are open about sex and sexual relationships, even to using erotic love poetry in the Song of Solomon. The scriptural teaching does not correspond with this prudishness, as I said, but sex is often a disordered attempt to satisfy a need. G.K. Chesterton said that every time a man knocks on the door of a brothel, he is searching for God. That's really quite interesting. Every time a man knocks on the door of a brothel, he is searching for God. Could sex be a way, that, in some way, that we are really searching for God? Throughout this, this series of lectures, I'm going to make analogies. But even in the very term analogy, it speaks of similarities and dissimilarities. But the marriage between man and woman is the least dissimilar of all analogies that could be made regarding Christ and the church. For God himself uses it, according to Ephesians chapter 5. But I acknowledge up front that our relationship and soon coming union with Christ is not a sexual one. Not at all. However, God himself has used the sexual union of a man with his wife as the most profound analogy to describe Jesus' union with his body, the church. Let's look at some aspects of truth. Truth is often far more difficult to bear than a lie. Lies are often quickly diffused. But truth catches us short and challenges us to change. Truth welcomes your questions and is strengthened through sincere questioning. So question whatever I present to you. Decide to go wherever the truth takes you. 
but it is up to you to follow the truth. Truth is not afraid of your questions. The question is, are we afraid of truth? But this I ask, do not lower God's standard to your own personal experience. Do not lower God's standard to your own personal experience. If we don't discuss sexual questions in the church, then where should we discuss them? Maybe in biology class? Well, that's hardly a place to understand more than the fluids and flows. I think the home is the best, but unfortunately, few of us get such teachings there. Telling a child, or a man, or a woman to be chaste without giving them the tools is like asking them to be a concert pianist without providing them piano lessons. Likewise, demanding sexual purity from men without teaching them how to deal with their passions will cause them to explode. C.S. Lewis says that sexual sins are mere child's play when compared to the sin of pride and conceit. Let's see what the scriptures have to say about all of this. Jesus was most merciful with a particular type of sinner. Jesus was merciful with all types of sinners. But a particular type is really striking, and that is the sexual sinner. Because he sees them as the bride of Christ. Let me give you an example. In John chapter 4, there's a woman at a well, and she has five husbands. She's had five husbands. And Jesus said to her, Call your husband. And she said to him, I have no husband. And he didn't say, you tramp, you're lying, you've had five husbands. No, he said, he said, uh, you know, you've answered correctly that I have no husband. For you've had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. Look at the way Jesus covers for her, rather than exposing her lie in a blatant manner. He says, yeah, you, you know, you, you've spoken some truth there in that you have no husband. Actually, you've had five, but the one that you now have isn't your husband. So instead of just calling her a tramp and saying, you liar, he actually confronts her sin in a most merciful way. He says to her, he says, you have answered correctly. You see, his mercy toward the sexual sinner. In John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11, a woman, and actually men, are caught in adultery. And Jesus says, I don't condemn you. His mercy was great upon the sexual sinner. Jesus was so merciful upon sexual sinners. If you look in Matthew chapter 1, you'll see the genealogy of Jesus. And there are four women listed, which is a break from the traditional way the Jewish genealogies are listed. When one wants to point out a prominent woman, one will often list the name of her husband and put the definite article in front of it. For example, the Joseph, speaking speaking of Mary. But, interestingly, there are four women mentioned by name in Matthew chapter 1, in the genealogy of Jesus, all four of those women are Gentiles, and all of them, with some sexual sin, 
are part of sexual sinful experience within their heritage. Let me give you an example. Matthew chapter 1, verse 3, it mentions Tamar, who is described in Genesis, Genesis chapter 38. Tamar was guilty of prostitution and incest with her father-in-law, Judah. And Judah himself was also mentioned in the same verse. So you have Tamar, guilty of prostitution and incest in the lineage, in the, the fleshly lineage of Jesus. If you look in Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, Rahab in Joshua chapter 2, verse 1 is listed. And she was a prostitute. Rahab always referred to as the prostitute. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, Ruth, a Moabite, is listed. She's a descendant of the incestual relationship between Lot and its oldest daughter, as is described in Genesis chapter 19, verses 36 and 37. Lot also committed incest with his younger daughter, which became the, the, the people of the Ammonites. So you have Ruth, though herself not a sexual sinner, is of the line of an incestual relationship. And then in Matthew chapter 1, verse 6, Bathsheba is listed, who although she had done no wrong, she was raped by the rapist David in 2 Samuel chapter 11, who himself was part of Jesus' genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, verse 6. So you see, of the four women listed, all of them had some form of sexual sin or lineage of sexual sin or abuse from sexual sin. I would bet that all of us are products of multiple illegitimate sexual experiences within our lineages. Yet God's mercy abounds because in many ways people are not aware of the devastation of such actions that it's going to cause upon their lives. And as God said in Jonah chapter 4, verse 11, should I not have compassion on people who do not know the difference between their right and their left hand? People are often unknowing as to how harmful sexual disorder can be. And God has mercy. Marriage is the bookends of the Bible. Adam married Eve in Genesis, and Jesus marries the church in Revelation. Let's look at freedom. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 16, it says, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. So you see, God created us with freedom. Because without freedom, love is impossible. We have the freedom to choose right or wrong. But we do not have the, the freedom to define right and wrong. God is for choice, but some choices are always wrong. Nevertheless, the choice is ours. The image of Christ and the church is stamped directly in the anatomy of the human body. In Ephesians 5, 21-33. The body makes visible for us God's eternal mystery. His plan is to marry us. God wanted it so plain that he stamped it in our body as male and female. The man is there to give and the woman to receive. The anatomy of the human body does not make sense alone, but only in the union of the two. In John chapter 1 verse 14 it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He became flesh and tabernacled, which means took on skin among us. He skinned among us. 
Our bodies proclaim the union of Christ and the church. The two become one flesh. And I am making reference to Christ and the church, as it says in Ephesians chapter 5. What is Jesus' greatest new commandment that he left with us? Jesus said in John chapter 13, verse 34, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you love one another. You see, he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you. So, his new commandment is that we are to love one another how as he has loved us. This is the meaning of the life that he has given us. Man cannot properly live without loving and being loved. And Jesus said in Luke chapter 22, verse 19, This is my body given for you. This is how Jesus loves. We are called to love as Christ loves. A total self-donation for the good of the other. If you or I do anything for another person other than in the other's best interest, it is not sincere love. Love is looking out for the other's best interest. This is the only context for proper sexual love. The marital embrace is a particular sexual expression of loving as Christ loves. This is the only context in which we can understand scriptural sexual ethics. And it is summed up in one simple question. Does this act, does this behavior, does this thought truly image God's love? If it does not, it is not God's definition of love. I will repeat. Does this act, does this behavior, does this thought truly image God's love? If not, it's not God's definition of love. Sexual abuse in women and in men as a result of experiences from childhood or adulthood can so stigmatize them that receipt of God's love can be difficult. I've seen people very dear to me so abused and walked with them through every phase of that experience. It can be overwhelmingly draining to the highest order. However, I bow before God and ask you, Father, to free them from the shadow of this event and open their hearts to receive this teaching as from your loving hand, O God. Let's look more deeply at sexual ethics. Both liberals and conservatives undervalue sex. Liberals often have no clue as to how valuable sex is. If they did, they would not so liberally use it. Conservatives are often fearful of dealing with issues of sexuality because their self-repression of their lust has caused them a fantasy life which is self-condemning. You know, there's, there may be a hundred sexual acts between a man and his wife in a single year. Did you know there's only a hundred sexual acts that separate you from your ancestor that lived at the time of Jesus? And how do we find that out? Well, if you figure that the, the average age of a woman who bears a child is about 20 years old, historically that's probably about right. And so if we take 20 years old, times a hundred sexual acts, 
That brings us back 2,000 years. 20 years times 100 acts would bring you back 2,000 years. Someone at the time of Christ. 200 sexual acts bring us back 200 times 20 years. Bring us back 4,000 years. Bring us back to the time of Abraham. 300 sexual acts bring you back 6,000 years. The dawn of human history. If one of those acts did not take place, you would not be here. And most of us would not be here either. You see, because we are so interlinked throughout history. So you see that the choices that men and women make in the sexual realm take on the weight of human existence and underpin all of human history. Is an alcoholic who cannot say no to his next drink really free? If you're enslaved to something, are you really free? If you cannot say no, then what does your yes mean? The world says that sexual freedom is having all the sex you want, anytime you want, and with whoever you want. Such a response is not real freedom, but bondage. If addictions dictate, you are enslaved. Most of us eat out of a dumpster, thinking that it's the only food we have. We're not aware of the banquet. And I'm not condemning those who eat from the dumpster. But we are simply so impoverished and starved for true sexual union that we keep turning to eat out of the dumpster thinking that that's all there is. You can only eat from a dumpster so long before you vomit. And who will be there when you vomit? Well, to tell you the truth, it will be the church. That's our call. And if you say there has got to be more to life than this dumpster, in other words, you're frustrated with your inability to be free from this lustful drive. I tell you, that is the pinprick of faith. That is the pinprick of faith. If you realize there's got to be more, that's the beginnings of faith. And this teaching can set you free. You know, it hurts a man to surrender lust because that's all he thinks he has. But what we experience is a profound resurrection on the other side that brings us to new heights of sexual freedom and a banquet rather than this gross dumpster. Throughout this teaching, I'm going to cover five points. This is just the introductory comments, but the five points that I will cover are, first of all, redemption is not a sham. Victory over lust. The second point is the true meaning of manhood. The third point, the true meaning of womanhood or woman, God's masterpiece. Number four, point number four is converting the Christian bedroom from hell on earth to heaven on earth. And what is the line for the unmarried? So the fourth point is converting the Christian bedroom from hell on earth to heaven on earth. And what is the line for the unmarried? And the fifth point is Marriage is not a sham. Lowering the divorce rate from the current 52% to the extraordinary number of less than 1%. Let me give my acknowledgments right here in the introduction. I am indebted to several authors and speakers, but mainly 
C.S. Lewis, G.K. Chesterton, Janet Smith, Carol Wojtyla, Sam and Bethany Tarode, and Elizabeth Elliot. But most of all, I am indebted to Christopher West, as I have often used his thoughts and his words, which he freely offers to others. But it is clearly derived from his teaching, which he acknowledges to have taken in large part from Carol Wojtyla. Okay, the summary of this introductory section is, I'm not here to judge. I have lots of my own sin. We are together longing for the solution to our struggles. We must walk in the truth of God's light, and therefore I ask you not to lower God's standard to your own personal experience. Jesus' greatest new commandment is seen in John chapter 13, verse 34. He says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. This is the meaning of life and the only context in which we can understand scriptural sexual ethics and is summed up in one simple question. Does this act, does this behavior, does this thought truly image God's love? If not, it is not God's definition of love. We often miss the pursuit of love and end up eating out of the dumpster. But we will outline in this course the way to the banquet.